Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Sharon McConnell-Sadoric, author of Silk, Stockings, and Socialism. Sharon McConnell-Sadoric, author of Silk Stockings and Socialism, Philadelphia's Radical Hosiery Workers from the Jazz Age to the New Deal. How'd you get interested in this? Well, um, I sort of fell into it kind of serendipitously. I met two people, uh, Howard and Alice Kreckman. They were in their 80s at the time, I guess. And I, I came to know them, and through that, I found out that they had been, um, they had been lifelong social justice activists. They had uh, marched for civil rights. They had marched against the Vietnam War. They had marched for women's rights. And I, I was very curious. At the time, they were living in Willingboro, New Jersey, and I was very curious about what created people like this. And I started talking to them, and they, um, over a period of time when I got to know them, they told me that now they had actually grown up in, as they said, a section of Philadelphia called Kensington. And I thought, well, I grew up in the greater Kensington area. And so when I told them that, they started telling me all these stories about that both of them had gone to work in a hosiery mill when they were 14 years old, when they left school. and they started telling me about the uh, the fight to for unionization. It went through the the period of the uh, the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, and and um, some of the things that happened in the neighborhood, some of the strikes, some of the martyrs, some of the um, real activity of women, a lot of women. And I was just really amazed by it because. As I said, I grew up in the greater Kensington area. I came from a union family. Uh, I grew up working class, and I knew nothing about this history at all. It had just been lost. And so, and I was talking to them, I said, well, I, you know, how did this get, I just can't believe that this hasn't been known to people like me. And they just looked at me, and Howard just said, well, I guess you have to write it then. <laughs> so <laughs> that was really the thing. And they, they've kind of been sitting on my shoulders ever since. Well, how big an industry was the hosiery industry? I mean, it sounds like in, it's a fairly narrow product line. Um, it is a narrow product line, but in the 1920s, the book is basically about the 1920s jazz age and the Great Depression, um, New Deal era <clears throat> of the 1930s. And in that period, the 1920s in particular, the, uh, these are full-fashioned hosiery, which I'll explain what they are, uh, was the most important industry in the city in the late 20s. It's part of the textile industry. Textile was always a, a major industry in Philadelphia. But in that period, be, because of, of the flapper, essentially, the 20s, uh, when there was major changes in society of you know, all the consumer products and all that came out. And with the um, two major um, constitutional amendments, the 18th Amendment of Prohibition and the 19th Amendment of Women's Suffrage, giving women the vote, it really changed a lot of gender relations. We don't always realize that, but when you look on the ground, you really see it. Uh, women all of a sudden were being portrayed as being equal in, throughout the popular press and everything there. And there's all the, these things of heroic women based on the, the way that the suffragettes stuck out being um, put in prison and force fed and 
and all this comes out in the 20s. And so women are determined at that point. They, it just changes the whole dynamics and they are getting rid of the old um, clothing that's so constrictive and the, the uh, corsets and undergarments and also the dresses get a lot shorter and they're looser, they're more comfortable. And at that time when that happens, you can suddenly see women's legs. They cared about what kind of hosiery they were wearing. Previously, hosiery was knitted um, for the most part. I mean, there, there was full fashion around, but it was a luxury product before the 20s. What does that mean, full fashion? Full fashioned is, well, the, early, the most popular hosiery, the earlier hosiery, is knitted on a, um, a circular, and it's kind of like a straight tube so that and when you wore it, after a while, it would bag and sag. And when you had long dresses, nobody cared. But full-fashioned, um, I guess it was actually came the full-fashioned machines around 1860. Uh, the, the industry comes to the United States around in the 1880s. But it's a small luxury product because it, it's very skilled workers. They have these large machines with about 10,000 needles on them that have to be kept in perfect alignment, and they use fine silk fibers. So it's actually knitted flat, and the knitters, they have to add stitches and drop stitches so that it comes off the machine when it's joined together with this seam up the back, you know, this uh, sexy seam up the back. It's already in the shape of a leg. So it doesn't, it's, it's thin, it, you know, it enhances the legs, and it doesn't sag or anything. And with the era of the 20s, with the short dresses, it just takes off all over the place. And everyone and his brother is trying to jump into the hosiery industry. And there's a real boom. And Philadelphia has been a center of textile production. So it was really the center for, the largest center for full-fashioned hosiery. Although, it, like I said, it took off a little. How big was it? I mean, how many people did it employ? You said it was the d dominant manufacturer in the city at the time? It, it was the largest in that it, um, because textile, a lot of it's moving south to various different places at times. But um, at that time, it was uh, certainly the most um, profitable. And a lot of manufacturers that had done other things were jumping into it, and even big um, stores were starting to manufacture it, and you even get foreign capital coming in. So it was so important that um, the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania did major studies on it in the 20s and 30s, and that was very helpful for me because, you know, even that interviews of, of people that I, I was able to find. So it the um, the number of people employed varied a lot uh, at. The early part, it, it was before it took off, it was certainly a, a small industry. But then when it takes up there and it's spreading and all these shops are coming, they're bringing in um, all these new workers and they're very young. You know, and a lot of them at this period, they're, they really are jazz babies. They're getting into the whole jazz age culture of, uh, um, you know, illegal alcohol and dances and you know, black bottom dances, and they cut their hair short, and and they're wearing these short dresses, and and they're partying a lot. But then, you know, they're brought into this industry, so it uh, that in and of itself created a challenge for the union. The union was actually established back in 1909, and um, in Kensington. So Kensington over many, many years has been a, a place where a lot of immigrants came because there was so much, uh, many jobs here. That was the industrial section of the city. And so they, um, they, they're they actually, the union itself was actually a, a direct descendant of the Knights of Labor, which was also founded in Kensington in the 1860s. Was the workforce mostly immigrants? No, no, actually not in this period because we had immigration restriction. but. Um, the young people, the majority of them were born here, but a lot of them had foreign-born parents. So, and people tend to think of Kensington as Irish or whatever, and certainly there were a lot of Irish, but over this 
oh, period, you also get, and you can see it from the names, you're getting um, Polish and you're getting um, Eastern European and you're getting Italian and, as well as Irish and English. It was originally an uh, industry, came from England, but that was back always. What was life like for a, a mill worker at the time? Well, they, they, um, they, the mill workers were, you know, with the, with the hosiery industry, the, the, it was kind of a, what you call a, uh, some people call like the aristocracy, but because they were well paid because it was. Oh, they were well paid? They were initially <laughs> because it was, um, it was a very skilled industry and it was in such high demand, you didn't have a lot of people trained in it. They had a four-year apprenticeship system. And even a lot of the other jobs that were held by women, there was a lot of women that did the, like the seaming and the, you know, various other jobs. Uh, they had even apprenticeship systems for them. I mean, it was like from six months to a year. So you couldn't just bring somebody off the street right away. And so um, in union shops in particular, in, in 1922, the union won a major strike in the city. And, had control of the industry. So in union shops in particular, they had good conditions and wages were higher. But as the expansion takes off, you get all these people coming and opening non-union shops and they're uh, working 60-hour weeks, some of them, and you know, the, uh, sometimes the lighting is bad and they're using these very small fibers, so tended to end up wearing glasses pretty, you know, pretty quickly. And um, so th that was part of the problem, too, was this, this whole expansion. And you start getting overproduction because everyone's as, and if you know anything about the 20s, it end up with the crash in 29, a lot of that had to do with overproduction and underconsumption. That's exactly what's happening in the, in the hydrogen industry. Well, what was the male-female breakdown among the employees? Um, initially, it was more men to women. Uh, but they they sort of hit parity by the end of the 20s. Was this unusual at the time in industries in general? I think it depends on the industry. Certainly in the garment industry, you had a lot of female employees. But in textile, it probably was more unusual. Did they do similar jobs? I mean, were there male jobs and female jobs? There were male jobs and female jobs. All the knitters, which were the um, highest paid and, and uh, most skilled, were male, and the knitter's helpers were male. This will eventually change. But, and, but the uh, women's jobs, and a lot of this is traditional, that it comes, they did things that, uh, they felt that women had more nimble fingers or something that they could do. So they had uh, called uh, topping, because the stocking itself was actually knitted in two pieces, a foot and a leg. And then they had to be joined together at the end there. So women did the, the topping where they would take the from the footer to the legger and join that together and then they did what they called looping on some kind of machines where they would close the foot with some kind of flat seam and then the seaming that you know put, putting it together for the finished product. Was this a, like a reasonable length work day and a reasonable length work week, or was it kind of sweatshops? No, you? Not, in a, not, a, not initially it wasn't. It, like I said, they might work in some of the shops 60 hours a week. And the, the union, that was one of the big things, was keeping down the uh, going after hours and conditions as, as well as maintaining wages. So in union shops, they got it down to like, I think it was 48 and a half. Hours hey, a week. Your book's subtitle is Philadelphia's Radical Hosiery Workers. So what was radical about the hosiery workers? What made them radical? Well, they, uh, they were socialist-led. That's part of, of this, um, what it's about. And they had this, this vision that um, people had to be treated fairly, that uh, they needed, they had to be paid fairly, that and they also had this idea that you know working people should not be a push down class so they had um, put out you know a lot of their literature and everything is is putting out like a lot of defiance you know of things where you know the 
you know, have to call the boss mister, you know, or you know, that uh, you have to be um, asked for everything you do, you know, do that. These are your rights. You know, you, they did have a work ethic. They believed that people should work, but they believed that work had to be available and fair. And uh, they were constantly trying to put this out to the young people. In the past, with the older knitters, they had, um, through various things, they had established this uh, union, strong union, which is how they, but with all the new people coming in and young people and jazz babies at that, they, they really had to try to figure out some way to relate to them and to give this vision again, because they had a broader vision of than just the workplace. They were also very connected with the community and you know, of um, building what I call working class cosmopolitanism, which is something that they felt that all working people had to be united and they had, to, they had rights, all of them. Who were the they behind this? I mean, who decided that it should be a, a union driven, driven by socialism as opposed to just? Well, there were other groups in there too. It just evolved that way. There, um, like I said, it was it was founded in 1909 originally. 1913, it becomes a, a national union. And what was the name of it? The American at that time it was the American Federation of Full Fashioned Hosiery Workers, which is a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and. The people that there were um, wobblies, certainly in some areas. I don't know if you know anything about them. Well, explain to, to people who They're, don't know. Wobblies were more um, syndicalist, I guess. They, they didn't believe in a lot of like union structure or something. It was more of a, a, a move upwards. And there were socialists. Kensington and Philadelphia actually has a long history of socialism, which a lot of people don't know about. But so there were socialists, a lot of the German socialists that came over in the earlier period that, um, you know, there were German socialist singing societies and, and lots of meetings. And so there were a number of German socialists involved in this. Uh, later on, there's, there's a few communists, but they never really become big in leadership. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. You say in 1922, Branch 1 submitted for referendum vote a proposal authorizing a contribution of $1,000 to the Friends of Soviet Russia to be used for relief work, as well as a call demanding recognition of the Soviet Union and the establishment of trade relations. Was yes. there an international element to yes, it? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, the socialists were international, for one thing. And you see this later on. You see a lot of internationalism of uh, back and forth across the, the Atlantic in particular which really was going on for a long time because people, when people come over, they don't just auto automatically lose their connections with where they come from. But, um, but yes, there, there was definitely internationalism. And I think, I think in that period, certainly the, um, the Soviet Revolution in 1917 had a, an effect on a lot of people in, on, the, on the left that uh, they, were um, they were seeing it as a beginning for for world socialism, so there were connections with the Socialist Party in Germany and England and France, and uh, so um, and you see that later on with housing too. When you see the the housing project they get into, that there's all these connections uh, across across the pond, as they say. Um, they differed somewhat from later on from the communists in that they never supported Stalin. Did they support uh, ultimately the uh, government control of private industry? They became very strong New Deal supporters and uh, they definitely pushed for a lot of the New Deal programs. And so yes, for some, for some industries they supported government control, certainly which we sort of have. The, public transportation system, they supported that. And for utilities, they supported government control. Was their union radical compared to other unions at the time? Uh, well, I guess it depends on the union. In, in, in the early 20s, in 1919, there had been a major strike um, throughout the country, and some of them were very radical. But that was considered the, the first Red Scare that, that came, and a lot of people 
were deported, and, and so it really kind of crushed a lot of the union movement. So there were people who were more radical at that time, but in the 20s, it was a pretty much a low point for labor. So they were unusual in that they were actually growing and organizing and building a movement. And it was more than just a union movement. It was, it was a social movement. You know, they, they were calling for um, equality of the races, for, um, for women's equality. They were, um, you know, calling for voting rights in the South. They were pushing for anti-lynching laws. You know, it was a, actually a Is that something you think, you think the rank-and-file factory workers were in on, or they just joined the union and the leaders? No, they were in, uh, well, of course not all of them, but, you know. We, I, I don't like to, part of my background is in anthropology, so I don't like to make generalizations too much. But um, a lot of them were. They had something, part of their union that was very democratic. They had a referendum vote. So any major decisions within the union had to be sent out to all the different locals and the rank and file and discussed within the locals. And they would vote on it, and then they would send it back to headquarters before it could be put in, like that um, thing of sending $1,000 to the friends. Of, so that had to be voted on by everybody in the union. So, um, so yeah, they did have a lot of, I think that in and of itself gave people in the union a sort of a sense of uh, ownership of the organization. Was there, the, the process of organizing, was it as, as strife-filled as with some other industries, with steel or coal? Uh, yes. It was? <laughs> yes. The, um, the textile manufacturers were really blatantly anti-union. And it's, it's something that I, when I started doing my research and I found a, a lot of this, I really didn't know what I was looking for because I had done an oral history of these two people. And I know enough that, you know, oral history, problems of memory and things. So I had, you know, I knew I had to do a lot of archival research. But I didn't really know what I was looking for. So it was kind of a coming together from what I found. You know, I didn't go in with a theory. I kind of developed that as I found this. And uh, one of the th you know, things that I did find was that there was lots of this in, in um, let's see, the, uh, which Howard Kreckman had told me about in 1930, um, Carl Memorial at McPherson Square. Uh, he was 22 years old, and they, in the Averly Hosiery Mill, they had brought in, they were trying to unionize, and they had, um, a lockout. They had locked out the union workers and brought in these other people. And a lot of them in this period and in the 20s, they're hired guns. They really, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the jazz age and you have a lot of um, organized crime and a lot, of, a lot of them were doing this kind of these stuff. These are the strike breakers you're talking yes, about? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And they were armed. I never found any evidence that the actual strikers, the hosiery workers in Philadelphia had any weapons. Um, and it's not to say they didn't fight back, but they did. But, uh, and he, these people, they were in a car, they were, they were following some of the strike breakers to see where they came from because they weren't from Kensington, they were brought in. And they opened fire on the car and he was killed and a number were wounded and um, that, was, that was their first martyr. It continues. <laughs> I think you have in your book a picture from his funeral. Yes. It was a big, big event. Yeah, it was on all the front pages of the newspapers, which is another reason I don't understand why it wasn't written about, because it was all over the place. It was uh, on the front pages of the newspapers, and you know, it was a lot of the, in Fortune magazine, was it was written in, it was about 35,000 community residents and, and workers showed up at this and they take this pledge you know that they will lay down their own lives if necessary to to give rights to working people it was really pretty amazing what are uh, Carl Mackley houses that is uh, a project that the the as I said the Union was involved in a lot of um, social causes 
So this is, they, that was the first housing project under the Works Project Administration of the New Deal that the uh, union partnered with the Works Project. And they built this first project of um, workers' housing in Juniata. And it's really, it's built in the social modernist tradition. The architects themselves uh, had studied over in Vienna and various places when the Bauhaus School and the, um, uh, forget the other one, but anyway. Uh, and so it was actually very advanced. They, they had this idea that working people should be able to live as well as anyone else. And so it opened with a fully funded and fully staffed um, nursery school for the children of working mothers. This is 1935. It had a full-size swimming pool. It uh, had a wading pool for children and it, uh, they used these ideas of um, even like passive solar energy where they had large windows. The, none of them, the buildings, there's four buildings and they're three stories high so that you don't have these giant high rises and they all get sun and they have green spaces. It was really, it, it actually has a plaque on it now from the um, American Institute of Architects. It, it's uh, considered, you know, no. There was a big strike in 1921, was it? The, the one that brought the union back together in 21-22, yes. They had, they had split earlier on, then they came back together. Um, yes, that was the one for control of the industry in 21-22. Some of the people were out almost a year. Is that the one where these women, oh, you have a 1931 open shop, shop strike, strike with, yes. uh, with some women <laughs> in jail behind yes. bars, and they seem to be having a pretty good time there. Uh, they they were very defiant. You know, they, that was the whole thing. Um, it they um, they practiced a lot of Gandhi tactics. They were being taught Gandhi tactics, and so one of the things was passive resistance, filling the jails. And so a lot of these women are out there on the picket lines, and they're dressed in their you know modern garb, and they're being brought into the jails, and they're they're in jail and they get released and they go right back out on the picket line. It just really kind of was kind of amazing. Um, but there was a woman who was killed in 1931, open shop strike as well. I want to ask you about that word modern because you, you refer to modern women and you said that before. What, what made modern at the time? What did that mean in the 20s? Well, the modern women, they, first of all, they, were con they considered that they could do everything that men did. You know, you have well, you have women flying airplanes, and you have you know a lot of women in sports and the movies, you know, and it, a lot of it had to do with the way they dressed too. This whole new way of dressing that uh, with the shorter, looser dresses and the cut their hair so that they don't have the cumbersome long hair that they used to, and they are um, partying quite a bit, and there's uh, much more open attitude towards sex, and there's a lot of this in the, in the uh, magazines and the movies, and that was modern. <laughs> well, I ask you about the, the cover of your book, because the, it looks like it could be drawn today. It's Art Deco, actually. It's a, an Art Deco representation that they used. Um, in many of the uh, iconology you see from a lot of the unions, like steel and all these masculine things, are all these muscular males. Women became very important in the union, and uh, a lot of this, I think, came about because uh, and women started pushing for more rights within the union as well. But um, in this 20s and the early 30s, they're portraying them as as heroes. You know, the women were the leaders of the strike, and they're out there. Um, marching through rain and snow and hail. <laughs> it was really amazing. So they come up with this, this picture here. And what she's doing is she's holding union hosiery in her upstretched arms. It, like I said, it's Art Deco. You can see with the you know, angular figures and all this. And um, with the rising sun of labor over the cityscape in the background. And she becomes the image that they put on their flyers. Could women uh, have role, leadership roles in the union? 
Um, in the early period of the Union, uh, the Union was what we call an industrial organization from the beginning, which became big with the Congress of Industrial Organizations, um, which meant that everyone who worked in the industry could be part of the Union. It wasn't just uh, a skilled workers' union. But women did not have the same vote in the early, they did not have an equal vote. They didn't get, th get that until 29, and that was through a lot of the fact that they were fighting for this, and they started demanding these things. So um, in, by 1927, there was a woman on the Philadelphia Executive Board, but not on the National Executive Board. So you know, there's, uh, through them fighting on, the, they were actually out there, really, on the picket lines fighting, going to jail, and a woman was killed, and one of them by strike breakers, and they start demanding more rights. And they're passing, get, bringing up these resolutions. They start women's meetings, in the, which are sort of like the predecessor to the um, consciousness-raising meetings of, of second-wave feminism. And they're coming up with all these uh, things that they're pushing for within the union, including childcare, union events, and um, pay equity, and, uh, and more leadership skills. Could, could you explain the difference between the AFL and the CIO before they united? Yes, the AFL was basically uh, a union that organized skilled workers. They, they didn't organize um, people that didn't do skilled jobs, and so they were, they were really a lot more narrow. The CIO, which was the Congress of Industrial Organizations, was John L. Lewis and all these people came up with this idea that if you're going to have a strong union, you have to organize everybody that's working, you know, which kind of goes back to, as I was saying, the Knights of Labor. They did that, and, and they were doing that in the 1880s. They were organizing um, virtually what they said, all who work, and that included, which was unusual for the time, but a lot of African Americans and African American women and women, and, you know, and so the Hosiery Union was an industrial organization from the beginning because they come out of the Knights of Labor, but the AFL generally just organized skilled workers. Okay, and so when the, they found that, that that was the big split between the AFL and the CIO, that you organize everybody. I want to ask you about a couple of people in your book. Anna Geisinger, mm -hmm. who was she? She was, um, she was a topper in a hosiery plant. What did that mean? That's, that was one of the jobs where they, the women held that they transfer the, the material from the legging machine to the footing machine and add the two together, you know, put them together. And she became very important. She was the first female organizer that they hired in 1928 uh, out of the shops, pulled out of the shops. Uh, th that's one thing too, all the leadership, everything, the people were pulled out of the shops for that. And um, So Union was then her full-time job? When she became an organizer, she became a full-time organizer for a while instead of that. And um, yeah, and she became very, um, a very popular organizer. She was very good. She became, you know, that, that she was very good at speaking. Um, I believe she also became a socialist at that time and joined the Socialist Party. Any of them run for office? In the city? Yes. Yes, they did. Uh, in 1928 and in 1932 they were running. Um, they didn't win any of you know, uh, and one, they were kind of kicked off the ball ballot on some kind of... Did they run as socialists? Yes, they did. Was the city government with the unions or, or no. with the companies? <laughs> Not, not back then. No, they were. Um, they a lot of them were pretty much in the pocket of the companies. So, so you had the um, the labor police that would actually escort some of these armed strike breakers into the mills, and and that's how you know some of the confrontations certainly happened in 1933. That happened, and uh, two people were killed in that in one of those strikes. And you're also right about an Emil Reeve. Emil Reeve. Reeve, and he was a, a, a rival of of uh, Anna Geisinger. No, no, not a, not originally. No, 
Um, he was, uh, he became elected president of the National Union in 1929. Okay, and they have, at first they were doing fine, but they, he uh, kind of moved a little bit away from, um, he was getting more into standard politics and moved away from some of the programs that um, some of the other people were pushing that were more aimed at the broader community. He, he was kind of getting into the business unionism kind of thing of just looking out for the union. And a number of people within the Hoji workers disagreed with that, including Anna Geisinger. So, and also, he didn't support women's rights as much as some of the others did. So they definitely started clashing. He ended up firing Anna Geisinger? As a, yeah, as an organizer because, well, he tried to assign her somewhere um, and she refused to go, which you, you don't really do. So, I mean, you know, it, uh, it, it's, you know, trying to be kind of debatable about, about that. But, um, but Branch One, which was having some problems with Reeby's faction too, which Branch One is the Philadelphia local, and um, they hired her. <laughs> so it was kind of a, you know, direct slap in the face at Reeby, but at the same time, Branch One at that time was the most important branch, so they, they couldn't really just kick the branch out. So they did manage to overcome their differences long enough to, um, to actually win some important struggles and to, to, um, to move on in support of, of New Deal legislation. Another woman you write about is Cornelia Pinchot. Yes. Who yes. was she? She was the wife of the governor, Gifford Pinchot. She was, uh, she was sort of in the, the vein of um, Eleanor Roosevelt. And she was very supportive of um, labor rights and, and uh, you know, as, as you know, civil rights. And she was very close with the union. She actually appeared on some of their picket lines and she came to um, the Philadelphia office and spoke to the women and she was, and I think these kinds of things also helped move some of the women further towards um, feminism, like labor feminism, as I see it, because they were getting a lot of these other ideas as well. Yeah, yeah she, she, was, uh, she was interesting. Howard um, Breckman talked about it, and, and Alice, and said, well, she wasn't a very good dresser, you know, she didn't have a very good sense of fashion, but she was right out there with us on the, on the, on the picket line. What was it like spending time with the Kreckmans? Oh, it was fascinating, really. They, they were fascinating people. I, I heard lots of stories, and, and um, part of it, which, part of this for me it was fun, you know, the, especially learning all the stuff with the Jazz Age and finding all, all these kinds of things that was fun. Um, part of it was very inspiring for me, and then there were parts that were troubling, you know, the people getting killed and, you know. But um, Alice would tell me, oh yeah, you know, we women, um, we, I belong to this group called, we called ourselves the Bachelor Girls, and we went out dancing and partying, you know, she said, and out with the boys, she said, oh, we had fun. But then, at the same time, she, it would turn around and it's like, yeah, we women were out on the picket lines a lot. We would fight, you know, but we were union, you know. So, I mean, that, that kind of uh, really fascinated me too, this juxtaposition, because these are, these are not, you know, people that are originally, a lot of them, these young people, some kind of ideologues or something. They're just regular people from the community. And yet they move into this whole thing of, of you know, determine that these are rights. And, and as, as citizens, we have rights. And one of those is the right to unionize and the right to be treated fairly. And we will fight to maintain those rights. Yeah, so it's really kind of interesting. Did the economic health of the industry rise and fall based on the economy or, or on fashion? Um, well, it was, I guess it was a little bit of both. I mean, certainly later fashion changes, but in this period, it was uh, the key economy, certainly the, um, the crash of 29 hit, hit a lot of uh, the, the industry itself and, and overproduction. You know, they, there was too much out there. So, um, so the manufacturers looking at their side of it were trying to 
maintain their profits and so they were the way that they were doing that was to try to go after labor and you know put in like double shifts and longer hours and pay cuts which they take they actually take pay cuts in a couple of their contracts and some of them are pretty severe because their idea is that we want to keep the union manufacturers alive while we go out and organize the non-union manufacturers or the ones that are really undercutting everybody else and destroying the industry. You say in the book that World War I was good for the, the industry? No, it wasn't good for anybody, it I don't wasn't. think. <laughs> but no, um, not World War I that I know of. I mean, for that, not for this, this industry. Some people, uh, definitely World War I as in World War II, um, because people were away at war, other jobs opened up, so women could go out and get jobs that they couldn't at other times. I did find this in, in your book where you wrote, uh, the f uh, World War I, full employment brought about by mobilization of the economy for World War I brought many gains for American workers in the form of higher wages and greater mm -hmm. unionization, the war. but it also brought a dramatic expansion in the repression machinery of the state. Using the Espionage and Sedition Acts, the Bureau of Investigation infiltrated spies into factories and collaborated with private labor police and U.S. military intelligence ignored the Constitution and spied on civilians. Yes. And that I found, I went to the National Archives and actually looked at the uh, military intelligence files. And yes, they were. Um, you know, Howard had told me that there were spies in, in, in the industry and another um, scholar had mentioned that I should look at these files and I did and I did find that there, there were six private detective agencies working in Kensington as well as military intelligence. And, all, and they were infiltrating and spying on workers and, you know, of like people who were trying to unionize and trying to get into union meetings to see what they were doing. And Why military intelligence? I have no idea. I wondered that myself. You know, I, I don't know. And was it because <laughs> of the, the international socialism aspect of it? I don't think so because they were, um, they, this isn't the only industry that they were looking at. You know, they, when you go and look at those files, I found some where um, Leopold Stokowski, the, the leader of the Philadelphia Orchestra, the very famous, they were spying on him, you know, in this period. I actually found some of this because um, what he did during the Depression, there, you know, a lot of unemployed musicians, and he said he was going to lead um, a benefit concert for them, and the city told him he couldn't do it. And he said, well, I'm going to do it anyway, and he did. So they said that he had left-wing leanings or something, I don't know. So they were spying on him. It was kind of interesting. When was the industry at its peak? The peak probably was 28, 29, the actual real peak. But then um, there was still a lot going on in the 30s. And, um, and it, the problem is, is it starts moving out to other areas, which is what made it really difficult for the union. They had, you know, weak labor movement. They were trying to organize in all these other areas as well, and particularly the South. And the South was brutal. Yeah, and it, so they brutal in what way? It, the manufacturers were brutal. You know, I mean, I think we um, in the strike of 1934, when um, that was. The Great Textile Strike, it was called, that they called in. About, it was a really big strike. About 400,000 people went out all over the country. And people were beaten and shot and bayoneted. I couldn't believe the stuff that happened, and, you know, in, in particularly in the South, because a lot of the manufacturers who had been the old planters really had control of a lot of the, the, the cities and the you know, the police and the National Guard. And Tell me about the Apex. The Apex was the largest shop in the city of Philadelphia. Um, I guess they had about 3,000 workers. And they were extremely anti-union. They used the same attorney that Hitler's government used. They were, um, they definitely had ties across the Atlantic to, to the um, rising fascists in, in Germany. They recruited workers from Germany, and um, 
they were a real thorn in the side of the union, that they kept trying to, to unionize. Um, so, um, and, they, and they really did have ties to the fascist government. That wasn't just left-wing propaganda. When you do the research, you find it. Well, was pay or conditions worse in, say, in the apex when it was not unionized versus the Absolutely, mills that were yeah. unionized? They, they, and they, um, people had to dress in a particular way. They were very regimented. They couldn't get bathroom breaks a lot of times. If they did, they would spy on them in the bathroom and, and uh, you know, pushing them out. And they were, they were definitely lower paid as well. So that was something they were constantly trying to get. They eventually unionized? The apex? Yeah, they um, with the sit-down strikes that were saying, but the apex, as I say, it was. Um, I do agree, it wasn't actually a sit-down originally. It was sort of a takeover. They kind of uh, you know attacked the mill and took it over and threw the owner out and took over the mill and demanded a union. That that went to court. Um, that did, and they, in fact. Um, brought charges against the union under the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was actually turned out to be a, a, a benefit for, for the labor movement because the union won that in 1940, Supreme Court decision, that um, a strike was not a violation of interstate labor. It was for unionization, and so they, they won that. But the they lost the other part because there were some damages done within there. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the union, people, um, people overreact. You know, there was so much going on. So some of the machinery was destroyed, which the company accused them of. I mean, that was, and Howard Crackman said that. You know, he was really angry. He called them luddites. You know, he's luddites in the union. <laughs> so, but so they and they had to pay a, a, a large fine. Your book covers uh, from the Jazz Age to the New Deal. What changed when the New Deal came along? Well. Um, well, it started, I guess, in 1933 with the NIRA, the National Industrial Recovery Act that Roosevelt puts in. Section 7A gives unions a, a very small window for saying that you know, people have the right to unionize, but it didn't have anything to back it up. So a lot of the manufacturers would just ignore it anyway. But when that happened, the Hoji workers lead the first strike in the nation, you know, in all sections of the country that make hosiery, and including in Reading, PA, which was a, a really, um, had some very anti-union people in, in Reading. And they start, they really set a precedent for the sit-down. They, they, they're doing all this um, nonviolent Gandhi resistance. So what they did, they, what they call pulling a Gandhi, where they would just stop work and stand at their machines motionless, you know. And um, so they, they actually do win, you know, because the, the election, they started under Section 7A, you could have union elections. Before that, they didn't have any right for anything like that. And they win the elections, but the manufacturers pretty much ignore it. Well, you know, so. Under FDR and the New Deal, was the federal government more favorably inclined to unions? Was yes. there a shift I mean, there? After, I mean, after, you know, as a few years go on, certainly, like I said, he passes um, Section 7A of, of the NIRA, and that was overturned by the Supreme Court, but then um, you get the Wagner Act of 1935 that gets passed, and that actually gives people the right to unionize, sets up a labor board, and, and puts in penalties for if they win the election, if the companies don't go along with it, they are penalized. So why, that's much stronger. Why did the industry decline? Well, there were uh, a few reasons. One was um, there were changes in technology and machinery. Then, and um, during World War II, silk wasn't available for one thing, and they start using things like nylon and all, which stretches to fit the legs, so you don't need the skill to make these. And they have new machinery; it cuts out some jobs, but also um, a lot of them are moving to non-union areas, they're moving south because it's uh, very difficult to unionize in the south, and we still have that, but um, uh, th they tried, but it, uh, all these things together kind of hit the decline of the union. When did the last of the mills pull up stakes? 
in Philly. Yeah. Uh, I believe it was the apex. It was 1954, I believe. Is there any evidence today that it was there? Well, yeah. There's there are mills, abandoned mills, and some all over the place in Philly in that section. You can see them, ones that haven't burned down or whatever. Some have been refurbished um, in the area of Fishtown, which is now gentrifying, and the Brown Hill and Kramer has been turned into luxury apartments. And, you know, so the evidence is there and, and all the mill buildings, but it's kind of sad because um, the jobs aren't there. Yeah. If, if you go to Kensington now, what do you see? It's, um, it depends on where you go. You know, there's the part that's gentrifying, as I said, where property values are going through the roof and you know, new people are coming in. And then there's the, the part that is still really devastated by decline from lack of jobs and drugs and all. But, I mean, all these things I think are exaggerations because even in those areas, there are a lot of just regular people trying to live their lives and trying to get by. You know, but it's, you look at the media and it's crime and blight and drugs and, and that just doesn't describe all the people. Is this your first book? Yes, it is. How was it? What's the experience like? Uh, it was mixed. <laughs> it was uh, a lot of hard work. I, I had to, um, the union's files are out in Wisconsin, so I made two trips out there. And then there were some in Detroit at the, Ruther archives and I had to make a trip there. And then there was all the things at the University of Pennsylvania, but that wasn't so bad in Temple University. But, um, but it was extremely interesting and finding all this out as um, being from the neighborhood myself, it was, uh, for me, it, it, as I say, it kind of gave me back part of my heritage too, you know, of knowing all these things that uh, I just had no idea of because people in Kensington, I know when I was growing up, um, kind of portrayed as, as uh, kind of backwards and you know, not, not very progressive. And so you see that, you, you wonder how all this got, got and, and I know that wasn't true either, even when I was living there because there was a lot of things going on that weren't. How long did it take you to write? The actual book, probably about five or six years, but it was longer than that because I, um, I went back to school later in life and I used this as my thesis to get my PhD, but then after that to turn it into a book was, uh, took a lot more research and writing. And you know, so I was working on it for a while. You know, and, I, and I had other things going on because I also had children I was raising and, and working. and. Um, but Howard and Alice were constantly sitting on my shoulder, so I know I had to get it done sometime or another. You think you'll do another book? Uh, possibly. It's, it's possible. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Sharon McConnell Sidorik. She's the author of this book, Silk Stockings and Socialism, Philadelphia's Radical Hosiery Workers from the Jazz Age to the New Deal. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.